This is Space Time Series 25, Episode 131, for broadcast on the 5th of December 2022. Coming up on Space Time, Artemis 1 on its way back home. More possible organic compounds discovered on the red planet Mars. And the search is on, hunting for the second closest supermassive black hole to the Earth. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA's Artemis 1 Orion spacecraft is on its way back home after completing its distant retrograde lunar orbit around the Moon. The extended orbit took the mission to the most distant point ever reached from Earth by a human-rated spacecraft, some 435,000 kilometres. That easily eclipses the 400,171 kilometres reached by Apollo 13 back in 1970, and that was over half a century ago. The distant retrograde departure manoeuvre took place on December 1st, and it involved a 105-second engine burn. Orion had earlier performed a planned orbital maintenance burn designed to maintain the spacecraft's trajectory and decrease its velocity ahead of its December 1st departure from distant retrograde orbit. During the maintenance burn, Orion used six of its auxiliary thrusters on the European service module, firing them for 95 seconds. That 95-second burn was initially planned to be far shorter in duration, but it was increased to add additional test objectives to the mission. It gave mission managers additional data to characterize the thrusters and their radiative heat effect on the spacecraft's solar array wings in order to help fill in Orion's operational constraints. All previous thruster burns were just 17 seconds or less. The 105-second departure maneuver burn took Orion out of distant retrograde orbit and placed it on a close trajectory to the Moon. As the spacecraft swooped past the Moon on December 5th, it undertook a return-powered flyby. The six-day distant retrograde orbit stretched over 95,000 kilometres above the lunar surface, and it allowed mission managers and engineers to push several aspects of the unmanned Orion spacecraft to its limits, tests needed to understand the spacecraft in deep space missions. These include Orion's main propulsion systems, such as its orbital manoeuvring system, or OMS, which was originally built and used on the space shuttle fleet. Then there's the 8 R4D auxiliary thrusters and the 12 RCS or Reaction Control System thrusters. Orion's communication and navigation systems and its ability to handle radiation events were also tested. In order to gather more data on the spacecraft's capabilities, mission managers have now elected to add four additional test objectives to Orion's return trip to Earth. Two of these will evaluate whether opening and closing the pressure control assembly valve will affect a slow leak in that system. A third will demonstrate Orion's ability to perform attitude maneuvers at a rate that would be necessary for a test on Artemis II. And a fourth will test Orion's capabilities of flying in a three degree of freedom attitude control mode, as opposed to the six degrees of freedom mode it typically flies in. Of course, the last big test of the mission will be Orion's heat shield as it slams into the Earth's atmosphere at over 40,000 kilometres per hour on December the 11th. 
Artemis One mission manager Mike Sarafin says the Artemis team are continuing to collect flight data and buy down on the risk for a manned flight, learning how the system is performing, where the margins are, and how to operate and work with the vehicle as an integrated team. Now, if the final days of the flight continue as smoothly as the mission has gone so far, the next launch of the SLS rocket and Orion spacecraft will be the first manned mission, Artemis II, which at this stage is slated for 2024. That will orbit the moon, but not land. And it will be followed by Artemis III in 2025, which will take humans back to the lunar surface, landing near the moon's south pole. After more lunar missions, Artemis will ultimately be used to take humans to Mars and beyond. Meanwhile, it's been revealed that the launch of the world's most powerful rocket, the Space Launch System, or SLS, caused relatively little damage to the launch pad, despite blowing some 8.8 million pounds of thrust during liftoff. Serafin says the damage was confined to just a couple of areas on Zero Deck, that's the section of the mobile launcher platform that bears the brunt of the rocket engines at liftoff. The damage included discoloration and peeling of paintwork on the launch pad, destruction of two cameras, damage to a pair of elevator doors, which were blown out by the intense pressure of the launch, and damage to some pneumatic lines associated with gaseous hydrogen and helium supplies, which triggered some low oxygen readings until the leaks in the pneumatic lines were isolated. Throat plug material from the solid rocket boosters, which was designed to be expelled at liftoff, was found on the ground after the launch, as was caulking from the Orion capsule, which may have been removed during the launch, or during Hurricane Nicole, which hit Space Launch Complex 39B at the Kennedy Space Center a week before liftoff. NASA have also released details of the status of the 10 CubeSats, which were launched from the interstage ring of the SLS's interim cryogenic propulsion stage after it was jettisoned by Orion. These six-unit CubeSats were built by either NASA or partner space agencies, research institutes and universities, or by commercial space companies, and they were designed to perform a variety of experiments under deep space conditions. While all were deployed successfully, six have either failed to make contact with their mission managers or have experienced problems since deployment with their current positions unknown. The teams behind these missions are continuing to troubleshoot the issues affecting their spacecraft. This report from NASA TV explains how it was all supposed to work. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff! SLS is the largest and most powerful American rocket since the Saturn V and will eventually send humans farther into space than ever before. Two minutes into the flight, the twin solid rocket boosters burn out. About 10 minutes after the Orion and its service module escape the pull of Earth's gravity, the two will disconnect and Orion will proceed toward the moon. On the SLS second stage, housed within the multi-stage adapter, are multiple small spacecraft known as CubeSats. CubeSats are about the size of a large shoebox and weigh less than 30 pounds each. SLS is carrying these CubeSats piggyback, which will give them a low-cost ride into deep space. Once Orion is a safe distance away, the small payloads begin to be deployed. The dispensers on the adapter ring completely isolate the CubeSats from the SLS. They require no power and operate completely independently of the rocket. 
One of these CubeSats is called Near-Earth Asteroid Scout, or NIA Scout, a new capability for exploration. Low-cost reconnaissance of asteroids. Asteroids to which we may one day send human explorers. Shortly after the NIA Scout CubeSat is ejected from the SLS, solar panels deploy to provide the spacecraft with power. Next will be unfurled an 85 square meter solar sail. The sail, the length of a school bus, reflects sunlight and is the spacecraft's propulsion system. This is the largest solar sail ever deployed by the United States. NIA Scout will fly by the moon, which will help send it on its way to the target asteroid. The key to enabling this low-cost reconnaissance capability is the propulsion system that will enable the NIA Scout to go from near-Earth space to a deep space rendezvous with an asteroid. Using the sunlight pressure, NIA Scout will continuously alter its trajectory as it moves toward its asteroid rendezvous. Sunlight particles, or photons, which in this case behave like tiny ping-pong balls as they bounce off the sail, push on the sail as they reflect from it. And since the sun is always shining, the thrust is continuous. However, it is very small, on the order of an ounce of force per football field of area. Once at the asteroid, NIA Scout's onboard camera will image its surface in detail, answering many questions about the asteroid's composition and history. Exploration Mission 1 will serve as a proving ground for the integrated Orion spacecraft and the Space Launch System. In addition, it will provide an enabling capability for flying interplanetary small spacecraft for science and exploration. This is space time. Still to come, possible organic compounds found on Mars and astrophysicists to begin hunting for the second closest supermassive black hole to Earth. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Scientists are reporting the detection of more possible organic compounds on the red planet Mars. The new findings, reported in the journal Science, follow the analysis of multiple rocks found at the bottom of Jezero Crater by NASA's Mars Perseverance rover, revealing significant interaction between rocks and liquid water. Those rocks also contain evidence consistent with the presence of organic compounds. Now, let's get one thing straight here. The existence of organic compounds, that is, chemical compounds with carbon-hydrogen bonds, is not direct evidence of life. See, these compounds could be created biologically, but they can also be created through non-biological processes. However, these samples, together with the new ones, will be returned to Earth for more detailed laboratory analysis in the upcoming sample return mission with the European Space Agency. Perseverance previously found organic compounds at Jezero Delta, where sediments washed down from further upstream settled. Mission scientists are especially interested in the Jezero Delta region because these formations can preserve microorganisms. Deltas are created when rivers transporting fine-grained sediments enter a deeper, slower-moving body of water. As the river water spreads out, it abruptly slows down, depositing the suspended sediments it was carrying and trapping and preserving any microorganisms that may exist in the water. However, the crater floor where the rover landed before travelling to the delta was more of a mystery. In lake beds, the researchers expected to find sedimentary rocks. That's because the water deposits layer after layer of sediments. 
However, when the rover touched down, some researchers were surprised to find mostly igneous rocks, that is, cooled magma on the crater floor, and the minerals in them recorded not just the igneous processes, but also significant contact with water. These minerals, such as carbonates and salts, require water to circulate in the igneous rocks. In the process, carving out niches and depositing dissolved minerals in areas like voids and cracks. In some places, the data shows clear evidence for organics within these potentially habitable niches. The minerals and co-located possible organic compounds were discovered using Sherlock. Sherlock stands for Scanning Habitable Environments with Raman and Luminescence for Organics and Chemicals Instrument. Mounted on the rover's robotic arm, Sherlock is equipped with a number of tools, including a Raman spectrometer that uses a specific type of luminescence to search for organic compounds. It can also see how they can be distributed in a material, providing insights into how they were preserved at that location. As the rover rolled towards the delta, it took numerous samples from the water-altered igneous rocks, and it since cached them for future sample return. The samples need to be returned to Earth so they can be examined in larger, more fully equipped laboratories. After all, there's only so much equipment you can put on a car-sized rover that's heading for another planet. The advanced instrumentation available on Earth will allow scientists to determine definitively presence and type of organics and whether they've got anything at all to do with life. This is Space Time. Still to come, astrophysicist hunting for the second closest supermassive black hole to Earth Beijing announces its latest plans for a moon base. And later in the science report, the world's largest volcano, Hawaii's Mauna Loa, erupts for the first time in 40 years. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Two astrophysicists have suggested a new way to observe what could be the second closest supermassive black hole to Earth, a behemoth some 3 million times the mass of our Sun, located in the dwarf galaxy LEO-1. The supermassive black hole, labelled LEO-1 star, was first proposed by an independent team of astronomers back in late 2021. The authors noticed stars picking up speed as they approached the centre of that galaxy. That's clear evidence of a black hole. But directly imaging emissions from the black hole wasn't possible. Now, Avi Loeb and Fabio Pacusi from the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics have published a study in the Astrophysical Journal Letters suggesting a new way to verify the supermassive black hole's existence. Pacusi says black holes are very elusive objects, which sometimes enjoy playing hide-and-seek. Rays of light can't escape their event horizon, but the environment around them can be extremely bright, and if enough material falls into their gravitational well, it can be detected. However, if the black hole is not accreting any mass, in other words, if it's not feeding, it emits no light and becomes impossible to detect. This is the challenge with LEO-1, a dwarf galaxy so devoid of gas available to accrete into it that it's often described as a fossil. But Loeb and Bacusi claim that a small amount of mass loss from stars wandering around the black hole could provide the accretion rate needed to observe it. Bacusi points out the fact that old stars become big bloated red giants. And red giants typically have strong winds that carry a fraction of their mass into the surrounding interstellar space environment. 
And if the space around Leo 1's star contains enough of this material from these ancient stars, there should be some observability there. Loeb says if they're right, observing Leo 1's star could be groundbreaking. It would be the second closest supermassive black hole to the Earth after Sagittarius A star, the one at the centre of our own galaxy, the Milky Way, and which is located some 27,000 light-years away. Sagittarius A star has some 4.3 million times the mass of the Sun, and Leo 1 star has a very similar mass range. But it's hosted in a galaxy that's a thousand times less massive than the Milky Way. And this fact challenges everything astronomers know about how galaxies in the central supermassive black holes co-evolve. How did such an oversized baby end up being born in such a slim parent? Decades of studies have shown that the most massive galaxies all host supermassive black holes in their centres. And the mass of the black hole is usually about a tenth of a percent of the total mass of the spheroid of stars surrounding it. Loeb says if this rule was true, then in the case of Leo 1, scientists would expect to see a much smaller black hole. Instead, Leo 1 appears to contain a supermassive black hole three million times the mass of our Sun, and that's very similar to the one hosted by the Milky Way. And this makes it all very exciting, because science usually advances the most when the unexpected happens. China says it'll establish a lunar base at the Moon's South Pole by 2028. The outpost will be based on two robotic exploration missions and will be followed by a Chinese manned lunar mission in the 2030s. The announcement follows the completion of China's Tiangong, or Heavenly Palace space station, and last week's launch of three more Taikonauts to the orbiting outpost, replacing the Shenzhou-14 crew currently on station. The Shenzhou-15, launched from the Jiaquan Satellite Launch Center in northwestern China's Inner Mongolia, aboard a Long March 2F rocket. The crew are expected to carry out three to four spacewalks and continue working on payloads both inside and outside the space station. The director of China's Deep Space Exploration Laboratory, Wu Riren, says lunar exploration is one of four major targets planned by China's space program. The others include asteroid and planetary exploration and a new heavy-lift rocket powerful enough to undertake manned missions to the Moon and Mars. Of course, in 2004, China began Project Chang'e to use robotic missions to explore the lunar surface. These culminated with the Chang'e 5 lunar sample return mission in 2020. Wu says the next steps will include another sample return mission with Chang'e 6, while Chang'e's 7 and 8 will explore the moon's south pole in greater detail and lay the foundation for a manned outpost. China and Russia have already announced plans for a joint manned lunar outpost later this decade. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. The 2022 State of the Climate Report by the CSIRO and Bureau of Meteorology has confirmed that changes to weather and climate extremes are happening at an increased pace right across Australia. The report, released every two years, shows an increase in extreme heat events, intense heavy rainfall, longer fire seasons and a rise in sea levels. 
The director of the CSIRO's Climate Science Centre, Dr Jackie Brown, says concentrations of greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide are now at the highest levels seen on Earth for at least the last two million years. The concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are continuing to rise, and that's causing Australian climates to warm. The report documents the continuing acidification of oceans around Australia, which have also warmed by more than one degree since 1900. The warming of the oceans is contributing to longer, more frequent marine heat waves, and that's causing increased cases of mass coral bleaching events. And this year has seen the first ever mass coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef during a La Nina event. The rate of sea level rise varies around Australia's coastlines, but it's the north and southeast of the country which have experienced the most significant increases. The Bureau of Meteorology's Manager for Climate Environmental Prediction Services, Dr Carl Braganza, says the report shows Australia's climate has warmed on average by 1.47 degrees since 1910. It's caused contrasting rainfall trends across the north and south of the country. While there's been an overall decline in rainfall between April and October across southern Australia in recent decades, in northern Australia rainfall has been increasing in the region since the 1970s. And during La Nina events in 2021 and 2022, eastern Australia has experienced the most significant flood periods ever observed. The report shows that heavy rainfall events are becoming more intense and the number of short-duration heavy rainfall events is expected to increase. The length of fire seasons has also increased across the country in recent decades. Australia can now expect to see longer fire seasons in the south and east, and an overall increase in the number of dangerous fire weather days. The world's largest volcano, Hawaii's Mauna Loa, has erupted for the first time in over 40 years, spewing lava and ash over a wide area. The Hawaiian Volcano Observatory says flows of lava have been erupting from the 4,168-metre-high summit and overflowing from the caldera. The United States Geological Survey says Mauna Loa has been showing signs of building towards an eruption for many years. The largest volcano on Earth by volume, Mauna Loa, whose name means Long Mountain, covers over half of the Big Island and is larger than the rest of the Hawaiian Islands combined. The volcano's submarine flanks stretch for kilometres below sea level to the ocean floor, which in turn is physically depressed into the crust thanks to Mauna Loa's great mass. That makes its summit some 17 kilometres or 55,700 feet above its base. Mauna Loa is one of six active volcanoes in the Hawaiian Islands and it's erupted 33 times since 1843. The last eruption in 1984 lasted some 22 days and produced lava flows reaching to within 7 kilometres of the city of Hilo in the northeast, which is home to some 44,000 people. Kilauea, the volcano on the southeastern flank of Mauna Loa, has erupted almost continuously between 1983 and 2019, and a current minor eruption there has been ongoing for months. I'm sure it's a question most parents have asked themselves. Is your kid's university or college degree really worth the money it costs? The College Payoff Report by Georgetown University has found that students who pursue a major in sciences, technology, engineering, maths, health or business and finance are projected to do well. Not only are they well paid, but they also have a high level of job satisfaction. But then again, you don't need a university degree to be happy and well-paid. 
Researchers found apprenticeships in trades also did very well, something anyone who's recently experienced an electrician or plumber's bill will be more than able to testify to. The problem is there are a lot of kids doing easy university degrees which don't really prepare you for a decent job afterwards. In fact, 44% of job seekers with university degrees regret the field of study they chose. A survey of more than 1,500 graduates found degrees in journalism, communications, education, sociology and the liberal arts and general studies, and that would include things like gender studies, topped off the list of the most regretted majors. Which begs the question, would you like fries with that? Well, it's not often we get to test out psychic predictions in real time, but we get to do so this week. Now, you may recall a couple of weeks ago, we reported on a psychic called Aaron Lazar, who had issued a warning on his TikTok channel claiming that a major world event involving the Atlantic Ocean will happen along the West Irish coast in November. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says these sort of predictions are usually fairly vague, but Lazar narrowed it down nicely. Okay, so we were in November when we did the report, and we sat back and waited to see what would happen. And according to Tim, nothing happened. I think we're still, still dry and uh, unsoaked. Still waiting, looking at the Atlantic horizon and seeing nothing. That's right. So with our binoculars on, still waiting for the wave to come. But he never actually said specifically it was a wave, but he certainly gave the implication the of yeah, going to be a wave. Yeah, everyone was expecting a tidal wave or a tsunami or something, and there hasn't been a flood. There hasn't been, there's been nothing, not even an Irish earthquake. To be sure. <laughs> sure and be good, right? Yes, absolutely nothing like that. So, I mean, it is a bit disappointing when you find that a psychic making predictions is actually wrong. <laughs> it's nice to see someone actually make a specific prediction. A lot of them are very, very vague and they say, oh, there will be a tidal wave somewhere in the world. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, thanks. Like an earthquake in California. Yeah, thanks. But this guy was pretty specific talking about the west coast of Ireland and that he said people need to have a bag pack and that watch out, you're going to get wet. So it's pretty clear what he was talking about. And it never happened. But only sports sports like skeptics go back and check it out after the fact. It's like that Monty Python sketch. June the 4th, 1973, was much like any other summer's day in Peterborough, and Ralph Mellish, a file clerk at an insurance company, was on his way to work as usual when nothing happened. It reminds me also of the quote from someone who says, How do you know your house is haunted? It's not. <laughs> That's it. I know. It's it's cruel to this fellow, but at least, I mean, he made a specific prediction, so he, he has to bear the brunt if it doesn't come off. I get people all the time approaching me with sort of predictions, and I say, well, you've got to be precise. You can't say something will happen in the next 10 years. They come back to me with some very clear and concise predictions, and surprisingly, they never do. Scarcely able to believe his eyes, Ralph Mellish looked down, but one glance confirmed his suspicions. Behind a bush on the side of the road, there was no severed arm. No dismembered trunk of a man in his late 50s. No head in a bag. Nothing. And with a little bit of help from the crew at Mighty Python, that's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, 
SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast download provider, and from spacetimewithstuartgary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more Spacetime, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash spacetimewithstuartgary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.